Tonight I want to talk about those five qualities known as the five hindrances. I hope it's not too late. Um, but I want to do it in the context of some what I call visionary statements of the Buddhas. One statement of the Buddhas, which I've always found quite inspiring, is when he said, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. It's because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. And the word defilement is kind of the archaic translation of a word in the Pali language, which is kalesa. More literally translated, kalesa means torment of the mind. And this is something we can generally get behind. The word defilement uh, sounds so judgmental and pejorative and rather mid-Victorian, but torment of the mind is something we can understand. Forces like grasping, clinging, jealousy, envy, greed, anger. When we are lost in them, when we're subsumed by them, then it is a torment. It's a state of torment. But the one of the extraordinary elements of that statement, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer, is the fact that the Buddha is naming these forces as just visiting. He's saying, in effect, these qualities that might overcome us are not, in essence, who we are. They're visiting. They're not inherent to our being. They're adventitious. They're born out of conditions, coming together in a certain way at a certain time. I just loved that image because right away I had this sense of myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business, and hearing a knock at the door, getting up, opening the door, seeing one defilement or another, and saying, welcome home, it's all yours. And in effect, forgetting who actually lived there. Or of course, we might have the opposite tendency, which is to hear that knock on the door, go greet the defilement, become quite frightened, dismayed, ashamed, guilty at seeing that defilement, trying desperately to shut the door in its face, only to find that that very same force is trying to come in the window or come down the chimney, or somehow it's trying to make its presence known. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. It's because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. They're just visiting. And a good deal of the the sheer skill of the meditative process is learning how to open that door and what to do, what to say, how not to get caught in either extreme of forgetting who actually lives there or the other extreme of being caught up in a a fearful, angry, resentful response. The second visionary statement of the Buddhas, which I think is the container for understand how, how, understanding how to work with the hindrances, is something that he's very famous for saying. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. A friend of mine who was quite a wit said, well, suffering and the end of suffering are two things, they're not one thing. <laughs> 
But sometimes they are one thing, actually. Sometimes it's by going right to the heart of the suffering that we, we see where the end is. Very often it's that kind of statement, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering, that makes people think of uh, Buddhism or the teachings of the Buddha as being very pessimistic, which it's not meant to be at all. It's really about freedom. Sometimes that statement is used to understand how important it is to genuinely recognize the suffering that does exist, how we can't overlook it, we can't pretend it's not there and come to the end of it. Another way that statement can be used is almost to provide a kind of grid or um, way of looking at our experience so that when we see something coming up within us, we don't call it good or bad or right or wrong or good or evil. We see, we actually view what is arising within us as a state of suffering or a state bringing us to the end of suffering. You know, when we are lost in, in those qualities that make us feel separate, make us more frightened, drive us to act in ways that create a lot of harm, those are states of suffering. Now just imagine for a moment what it would be like if the next time such a state arose in your mind, you didn't chastise yourself as bad or condemn yourself or get angry at yourself or, or belittle yourself, but you actually held it as a state of suffering so that the natural response would be not rejection but compassion. It would be a big difference for most of us to actually begin to view our experience in the light of suffering and the end of suffering, to discard the other labels. And then just as we view our own experience in that light, to be able to see the actions of others, the behavior of others, the mind states of others. Within that same way of perceiving certain states as suffering, other states as those things leading to the end of suffering. So that's the container. Within that, we do see our very common experience is that we have a lot of difficult things arise. It's very funny. Um, It was very funny for me last night hearing Susan read that list of the 11 benefits of metta, which when you practice in a very traditional setting like Burma, you are instructed to recite before every sitting. So in the beginning of every sitting, you go, when you practice metta, you sleep easily, you wake easily, you have pleasant dreams, and very likely you didn't sleep all night, you know, or, or you had a hideous nightmare. Um, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of things that actually do go on, even as you as you sit there and recite it, it doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, but the process, it can be, can be quite rocky. And that's the way it is for everybody. I was always reassured right from the beginning of my practice to hear that 2,500 years ago, the Buddha in a, a faraway culture would have a list of hindrances, all of which had appeared just that morning in my own practice. <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, this must be kind of 
classical. <laughs> this is okay. The first of the hindrances is the state of desire or attachment or clinging or grasping. And Joseph talked some about this the other night as the near enemy of metta. I have a, a personal theory, which is not canonical. It's not in the text anywhere. But um, I believe that on a journey to, say, one of the Brahma Viharas, on the journey to metta, we will necessarily go through the terrain of the near enemy. And each of those four does have a near and far enemy, the near enemy of metta being attachment. So I think inevitably, as we are developing a sense of what metta is, what it feels like, distinguishing it from attachment, from desire, from clinging, there are going to be some big swings into the land of attachment. It comes up in all kinds of different ways as we practice. Somehow, our entire sense of happiness and all the happiness that the universe can be providing is suddenly contained in one object or one person. And so we are counting heavily on that object or that person being there, not changing, not moving, not shifting. And therefore, it's a very forlorn state. It's not that attachment is bad or wrong or we need to hate ourselves for its appearance. But if we look honestly at how it functions in our lives, we see a lot of suffering. When I was first practicing in India, my meditation experiences were all pretty painful, very difficult physically, emotionally, in every way. But then there came to be a certain time when things were really pretty nice. I would sit and I'd feel like I was floating in the air and I'd have all of these, these beautiful, serene, peaceful mind states and I would think, isn't it going to be great to live the entire rest of my life just like this? And at the time I had no intention of ever coming back here, but I thought, well, you know, maybe in 10 years I'll come back and I could just see myself kind of floating down the streets of New York, you know, and with this beatific smile on my face in exactly that same state because I was sure it was never going to change. And, and then maybe 15 minutes later, my back would hurt or I'd get bored or something would happen and it would go away. Every time it went away, I would blame myself. I'd say, what did you do wrong that made that state go away? You know, you shouldn't have opened your eyes, or you shouldn't have breathed so loud. Or, you know, whatever you did, it made that beautiful, wondrous state go away. But of course I didn't make it go away. It went away because everything goes away. Every experience, everything that can be known, it arises and it passes away. That's the nature of things. To live in harmony with that truth is to have wisdom. To live in defiance of that truth is to live with suffering, with great suffering. The Buddha said it, he had very homey examples. He said, if you try to hold on to that which must inevitably change, it's like holding on tight to a revolving wheel. 
at some point in the cycle, you're bound to get run over. Because it's going to keep moving no matter what you do. You know, and naturally, we all, we all have desire. We all want things to be a certain way. It's not that force that we're talking about, but the clinging. It's that effort to control. When our lives become that, that effort at mastery, at keeping change from happening, it means that people are no longer people to us. They're objects. And even with material objects, our relationship is necessarily one of fear. Because as much as we try to hold life static, it's going to keep changing anyway. And so attachment doesn't enhance our enjoyment, actually. It's too bad, because we're really used to it. If we look carefully at what it does, we see very clearly that that whole cycle of trying to control and being thwarted and trying even harder and getting more frightened. And it's, not, it's not very enjoyable, really, and it's not really the same at all as loving-kindness. This is the state I was talking about this morning, what somebody once called metta with an edge, you know, like, get happy, <laughs> you know, you've got two days. You know, when all of that expectation and that demand is really suffusing our, our sense of connection, that's the, the indication of that feeling of attachment. But again, desire, wanting things, is, is quite natural. The degree of our investment, how much are we leaning forward How much are we trying to control? That's really the issue. One of my favorite stories about the Dalai Lama is this time when Joseph and I were at um, Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, which is uh, where Thomas Merton was a monk, and it was a Buddhist-Christian conference there that the Dalai Lama was speaking at. He'd come earlier in the day, in the first day, and had been given a tour of the monastery. So in the opening ceremonies, which were quite... um, dignified. Uh, He was speaking, and it was being taped for PBS, and he was speaking about his, you know, gratitude of being there, and then he started describing his tour, and all of a sudden, he started saying, well, you know, I was very impressed that the fathers here are self-sufficient. They support themselves in the monastery through the production of cheese and fruitcake, and then he said, they gave me a piece of cheese, but nobody gave me any fruitcake. <laughs> he said, it was really so unfortunate. I really wanted a piece of that fruitcake, and nobody gave me any. And, and he was, I was sitting there thinking, he's saying this, you know, kind of nakedly in front of um, dignitaries from two different religions and a television audience. In that childlike simplicity, I really wanted a piece of fruitcake. And he was laughing. He said, it was really too bad. You know, nobody gave me any cake. And, I leaned over and I said to this bishop, do you think you could get him a piece of fruitcake? You know, it was very clear that getting the fruitcake was not going to define the depth of his happiness or unhappiness. In some ways, it was kind of that lightness of being. Being able to say, yeah, I wanted it and I didn't get it, ha ha, you know. That was more indicative of where his greatest happiness would come from. So attachment, that grasping, that sense of need, 
you know, that will drive you out of the meditation hall to get that cup of tea, no matter what, no matter who you have to mow down in your path, <laughs> is a common feeling that does arise in everyone's practice. The second of the hindrances is what is known as the far enemy of metta. It's the clear opposite, and that's the state of aversion. Aversion includes both anger and fear. And interestingly enough, in the Buddhist psychology, anger and fear are exactly the same state, just in different forms. The angry side of it or the angry expression of it, of the aversion, is um, expressive. It's outflowing, whereas the fearful side of it is um, withheld. It's, it's imploding, frozen. But it's the same state of striking out against what's happening, wanting to separate from it, wanting to declare it as untrue. And metta, in particular, is considered to be the practice that will be the antidote to habitual, conditioned, determined anger or fear. It was taught originally by the Buddha as the antidote for fear. And actually, there's a sweet legend about that. It said that these, these monks had been sent off by the Buddha to a forest to meditate. And that particular forest happened to be inhabited by tree spirits who were very resentful of the appearance of the monks, and they didn't want them in their forest. So they decided to frighten them, to drive them away. And so they appeared as these horrible apparitions and made these terrible ghoulish sounds and sure enough the monks became absolutely petrified and they ran away. They ran back to the Buddha and said, oh Lord Buddha, please send us to a different forest. And he said, no, I'm going to send you back to that very same forest, but I'm going to give you the only protection that you'll need. And that was the first teaching of metta meditation. So whether you believe um, in kind of that whole cosmology, it doesn't really matter. You know, the symbolic Point is that it is taught as the antidote to fear. If in general we come from a place of fear and we do metta practice, in general we will start to come from a place of loving kindness. And it happens. It does happen. But in the process, there can be many moments when we feel very strong anger and very strong fear. It's just a natural part of, of going deeper within and uncovering many, many layers of all kinds of different feelings. The state of anger is quite interesting to explore from the point of view of the Buddhist psychology. There's certainly many, you might say, positive aspects to it. It's very strong, it's not passive, it's clear, it's a way of drawing boundaries, of saying no, of maintaining a sense of integrity. And yet at the same time, the painful aspects of it, the suffering aspects of it, are huge. The Buddha likened anger to a forest fire which burns up its own support, which can rage wild and free so that it might leave us very far from where we intended to go. And it burns up its own support. It leaves us devastated. It leaves us consumed. 
And so as a general way of being, it's not very skillful. As a means of sustained action, it's not very skillful. To come to a greater understanding of this is very important. There's a quality of mind when we are lost in anger which tends to be very diluted. We don't remember what we really care about. We don't remember who we're with. We don't remember the consequences of taking certain kinds of actions. We get very, very forgetful. I once had this experience where I was sitting at my computer and I was doing email and I got a question from somebody, an email saying, um, I don't understand what the problem is with anger. So I wrote back very briefly and I said, well, you know, one of the problems with anger when we're lost in anger is that at those times we... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.